got two readings this morning, a short one from 1 Corinthians and then uh, some longer ones from 1 Kings. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Jumping back to 1 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above, or on earth below, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the, pray- the cry and the prayer of your- that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now jump to verse 46. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies, who take them captive to their own lands, far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent, And plead with you in the land of their captors and say, We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave them, their their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And forgive your people who have, uh, who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their captors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servant's plea and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you 
For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses when you, sovereign Lord, brought our ancestors out of Egypt. When Solomon finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us, as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us, nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him, and walk in obedience to him, and keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. Good morning, my name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. Recently I was listening to the radio and I heard someone on the radio say, I can't believe that in the 21st century these ideas are still out there. And I I can't remember what they were outraged about. But whenever I hear someone say something like that, it always makes me wonder, where do they think history is heading? Because it seems to me that what's behind what they're seeing is that they believe that history is going somewhere. They seem to believe that ideas today in the 21st century will be better than ideas of the past, which I think is often true, but not necessarily true. See, why should it necessarily be the case that history is heading onwards and upwards to greater and greater glory as we leave behind the old and embrace the new? What does this idea rest on? It always strikes me when people say things like that. What are, what are they resting this idea on? Often it's, it seems to rest on the idea that science and technology will be the answer to all of humanity's problems. Or it seems to rest on the idea that education will allow us to move ever forward more and more. Or it just seems to rest on the idea that they think their idea of where history should go is the right one and everyone else should think so too. We're all heading towards Western democracy or we're all heading towards capitalism and and prosperity or we're all heading towards secularism and naturalism. We're all heading towards prioritising the rights of of the individual and self-expression or towards globalism. That's what should be the case in the 21st century and that's what's best and that's where history is heading isn't it? Now this has been where many people, many Western people anyway, this has been where many people have assumed that history is going, it's heading. But these last 20 years, they've thrown some pretty huge challenges to these ideas, don't you reckon? September 11, the global financial crisis, climate change, Ideological wars, identity politics, divisive, nationalistic 
often selfish leaders. Technology taking over our lives. And then more recently, bushfires, global pandemics, one state invading another state, floods, inflation, and we could go on and we could go on and we could go on. And suddenly the belief that history is heading onwards and upwards looks a little bit like blind faith, looks to be resting on nothing but wishful thinking. Don't you reckon it seems these days we're more aware than ever of the world's problems, but we're less confident than ever in any of the solutions. And the outcome of all this for many of us is is a feeling of unease, an incredible tiredness and a lack of clarity about what we should be doing next in life. You know, should my priority be getting into the housing market or getting out of it? Should I be changing electricity providers or trying to go off grid or just going cold? Should my priority be planting lettuces in the backyard or just giving up salad for good? And then we don't really know who to blame for how things are these days. Are the major parties to blame or is the media actually to blame or social media or is it actually us, us as consumers and what we want to consume that's to blame? And what's happened for many people in the face of all this is that they no longer think history is heading onwards and upwards. For many people now, they either feel that history is heading in in unpredictable directions controlled by whoever happens to seize power and influence and whatever disaster comes along next. Or some people think history is heading downwards towards war and climate catastrophe and chaos. And for Christians, for some Christians, this feeling of unease, it leads them to believe that surely the world must be about to end. Have you come across this? Surely all the the strange things that have been happening mean that Jesus is about to come back and about to wind everything up. Now, in a sense, that's, that's not a wrong feeling. This world is messed up. The mess does point to the need for an ultimate answer. And that answer is that Jesus is coming back and it will happen. And we today at this point in history are necessarily closer to Jesus coming back than at any other point in history. But we make a mistake if we think things like wars and pandemics are clear signs that history is about to reach its goal. Jesus said in Matthew 26 verse 6 to his followers, to us, he said, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. History can go in a great direction for many years and then go in a really bad direction for many years. And Jesus said, until he comes back, it's always going to be like that. Occasionally, Christians get caught up in in trying to read where history is going to go from the events in our world and from the Bible as if the Bible contains secret messages that can be decoded 2,000 years later after it was written. The Bible's not like that. Jesus makes two things clear. He makes it clear that you can know he's coming back to fix up the mess of this world. 
But he also makes it clear you won't ever know whether he's coming back before this sermon finishes today or in 10,000 years from today. But while we shouldn't look at the Bible to try and predict the events in history, we can see in the Bible the overall direction of where history is heading. Now, this might sound a bit strange, but today in the book of 1 Kings, we had part of it just read before, a book about events that happened 3,000 years ago. In these events, we actually can see the overall direction of history. We can see where history is heading, where God is taking it. Now, we're going to work through that. So let me show you this as we see how the book of 1 Kings keeps unfolding. Remember, so far we've seen Solomon become king. Remember, he became king not because of his own self-promotion or his own political maneuvering, but because he was the king that God chose to lead his people. And then last week, we saw Solomon is actually a humble king and a wise king. God tells him to ask for anything, and he asks for a discerning heart to govern God's great people. And we saw because of that, God blessed him not only with wisdom, but also with peace and with prosperity. And then in 1 Kings 4.20, we read last week, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. What we're supposed to be seeing at this point in what's happening in 1 Kings is that all sorts of God's promises are being fulfilled here. Like way back in, in Genesis 22:17, God said to Abraham, I'll surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Hundreds of years earlier, God had promised his people that they'd have land, they'd be a great nation, and he promised blessing. And at this point in 1 Kings, this is what we're seeing, that people are safe, in the land, that's a tick to that promise. There's lots of them. That's another tick. They were blessed. And they were even starting to be a blessing to the world around them. Since Abraham had, had packed up, left his homeland in response to God's promise, it, it's been a, a long and, and rough journey over many centuries. But never was there any doubt that things were heading in the direction that God had promised. Never. That's what we see here in 1 Kings. We see that history is heading to where God promises it will go. History is not heading onwards and upwards by humans getting better and better. But neither is history heading into random chaos and unpredictable places. History has always headed where God promises it will go. Now, from a human perspective, it didn't always look that way for God's people. Remember, Abraham was 99 and still had no son. And God coming through on his promises at that point looked pretty silly. Israel was in slavery in Egypt, oppressed for 400 years. And God's promises at that point to them seemed meaningless, cruel even. But from God's perspective, there was never any doubt. History always heads where God promises it will go. And at this point in 1 Kings, this point in this ancient book, we're seeing this truth illustrated powerfully. All the, the threads of the past are coming together in this moment. 
Have you ever been to a footy game in the city? I've never been to a showdown, but I imagine that would be the best. It would be the, the most interesting to see. Because when a game's on, everyone right across Adelaide, they, they, they start the process of coming into that game. I sort of never really know when a game's on, but then you drive past the street corner and there's all these people dressed strangely, waiting for the bus, making their way into the city. And then as the start of the game gets even closer, there are streams and streams of people crossing the Torrens, coming down King's William Street, all flowing into the Oval. And then even closer to the game, there's fireworks and banners and then absolutely everything comes together in that final moment when the final siren sounds and the game begins. Well, what we're seeing in 1 Kings is a bit like that. God is bringing all the promises in different places and at different times all to their fulfillment in this moment. In fact, there's just one more promise to be fulfilled. And in chapters 5 to 8, we see it happen. Now, we're covering four chapters today. We're going to cover them super quick. So if you've got a Bible there, it might be a good idea actually today of all days just to have it open to 1 Kings 5, just so you can skim through as we go along. Or otherwise, on your phone, you might find that helpful as well, just to kind of skim along, because I'm just going to drop in on little places and we won't always have time to show the verses today. And here at the start of, of 1 Kings chapter 5, so right there at the beginning, what you see if you have a look at it is when Solomon becomes king, the king of Tyre to the north, Hiram, he sends an envoy to congratulate him. And this is it's easy just to sort of gloss over this, but it's a pretty important moment. It's a pretty important moment in international relations. You know, it's an opportunity to shape the future, the future priorities between these two nations. Recently, Anthony Albanese and, and Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand caught up for the first time since his election. And what they discussed in that meeting shows you what they think is the priority. One of those was Jacinda saying, stop sending us your criminals. In verse 5 in this chapter, we see what Solomon thinks is the priority. He sends a message back to King Hiram saying that he intends to build a temple for God and he wants King Hiram to help. And Solomon says he wants to do this because God had promised David, his father, that one of David's sons would do this. Solomon intends to see that, that God's promise is fulfilled. And this brings us to our next point. History is heading to where God takes it through people. God steers history to where he promises it will go. But the way he works in history is through people. And especially the way he works is through his chosen king. What we're seeing here in 1 Kings 5 to 8 is God's promises meeting human obedience. God's gracious promises meeting God's chosen and faithful, obedient king. Now Solomon, we, we heard last week, he's a king who loves God, obeys God, a king who believes God's promises and acts on God's promises. And this is a very powerful mix. And through this powerful mix, God takes history somewhere remarkable. Now, remember, God had given Solomon wisdom and he'd given him wisdom for good reason. If um, this afternoon Chris Bowen were to ring you up and say, 
I want you to build a reliable, affordable, sustainable energy network for Australia. How much wisdom do you think you'd need for that? If you had any wisdom, you'd say, thanks, Chris, but get lost. Could you imagine the kind of complexity involved in a, in a project like that? Well, what Solomon is doing is even more complex and far more important than a project like that. There are economic barriers, international relations issues, there's supply issues, there's workforce issues, there's skilled workforce issues. And then there's the fact, this is no ordinary building. Solomon is building literally a house for God is what, what temple means, it just means house which is kind of an impossible task. And yet God has raised Solomon up and promised to do this work through him. And even King Haram, you can see there in verse 7, even King Haram can see that God has given him the wisdom he needs, Solomon needs, for such an epic project. And then as you glance through that chapter, Solomon gets the international relations and supply issues sorted. And then verse 13 he gets the workforce issues sorted, 30,000 conscripted workers, plus verse 15, 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters. This project is enormous. This is, is an absolutely amazing point in history. And think about it. They're not conscripted for war. They're conscripted, conscripted to be involved in seeing God's Promises come to fulfillment. All Israel is, is invested in some way in this project. And what we're supposed to be hearing as we, as we read through these chapters is the significance of this event. It, it's unparalleled. And it's happening as God's promises meet the obedience of God's faithful chosen king. Now, if you're skimming with me, uh, jump down to chapter 6 now. And as we look down chapter 6, that first part of it, we see the temple is actually modelled off the tabernacle, the, the tent that Moses had built. The temple's bigger, it's more permanent, it's far more beautiful, but it, it's exactly the same kind of thing as the tabernacle. And we see that this is, really is God at work through Solomon. He's not just sort of working on his own. Look at verse 12 where, where God speaks to him and says, As for this temple you are building... If you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David, your father. And then notice we see where God is taking history. We see God's goal for history. Verse 13, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. This is our last point. History is heading to God's goal to dwell with his people. Absolutely everything you see in these chapters points to this goal. That the tabernacle was about God dwelling with his people. And the temple is like the tabernacle on steroids. If you skim across this chapter, you can see that the temple is actually designed to make you think of the Garden of Eden. It's full of garden imagery. Like look at chapter 6 verse 29. It's all about heavenly beings alongside flowers and trees. It, it's all about heaven and earth meeting. The temple is about God dwelling with his people. And even the start of chapter 7, 
Even the start of chapter 7 shows God's goal for history. Look at verse 1. For some people, this verse seems out of place. You know, that we're, we're reading about God's house and then suddenly we're reading about Solomon's house right in the middle of this. Uh, it's almost as if they think the sacred and the secular shouldn't mix. And sometimes people read this as if it's a, a negative comment from the editor. And actually the NIV makes it sound this way. It, it adds the word however, which isn't there. But that's not what's going on here. It's not as if Solomon has got all his priorities mixed up at this point because his house takes longer and his house is bigger. That's not what's going on here. The point is that when God's promises meet human obedience and God's chosen king, then we see God bringing history to its goal. And that goal is to dwell with his people as he blesses people and the world through his chosen king. These buildings are the evidence of the blessings that flow when God dwells with his people. These buildings and their function shows that God, when he blesses his people with his presence, he also will bless them with peace, with justice and with prosperity. Now there's this this horrible idea out there in the Christian world that if you follow Jesus, life for you will be all peace, all justice and all prosperity. Have you come across that idea before? It's a horrible idea because we know it isn't true. Because Jesus tells us if we follow him, we need to take up our cross. We need to die to ourselves. And so it's, it's, it's actually right for us to be disgusted by the idea that Jesus guarantees us a life now of comfort guarantees us a life of health now and a life of money but don't miss that in god's ultimate goal for history these things will follow because this is what follows from god dwelling with his people now we'll come back to this in just a moment but first let's just quickly finish skimming across these chapters in the rest of chapter 7, as you skim through it, you see the, implement, the implements of the temple being described. Like in verse 15, outside the temple are these two massive bronze pillars that stand over 10 metres high. I had a look at the um, dimensions of, of, of this hall. So from one wall to the other, the halfway point is 8 metres. So even taller than that. Imagine just seeing these enormous bronze pillars there at the entrance to the temple and they have names one is called Jekin he establishes one is called Boaz in his strength the message is pretty clear as you enter the temple isn't it this kingdom rests on God history reaches its goal only through him and we don't have time to go into all the details and the imagery that are just overflowing in this uh, temple there's just too much here like the, the massive bronze sea representing God cleansing his people, representing a, a cleansing that would overflow into all the world as, as God would bring order out of chaos. And then at the end of chapter 7, there's a list of all the gold items made to be used in the temple. And in fact, the whole inside of the temple, floor to ceiling, was to be lined with gold. This is a truly remarkable building. 
And then in chapter 8, we see what happens when it's finally completed after seven years. Solomon summons representatives from every family in Israel. And they bring up the Ark of the Covenant with, with great care and respect. And we read in verse 10, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. This, this is the high point in Israel's history, in the Old Testament. This is, this is as high as it can possibly get at this point. God dwells with his people. And yet, did you notice what Solomon prays, what was read out for us just before? When he's on his knees before God, at the end of this great building project, look at verse 27. He prays, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. God's goal for history is is to dwell with his people. And yet, despite everything Solomon has has accomplished, his building project in the end is just a building. It's more permanent than the tabernacle, more glorious, but it can't contain God. And neither can it restrain God. After all the the effort that's gone into this temple, what we see in chapter 8 is that human disobedience still threatens God's goal for history. Look at what God says to Solomon in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, If you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them. And I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Solomon had enormous wisdom. Took enormous wisdom to to build a truly spectacular building and unite a nation. Unite many nations actually. But his building project couldn't deal with the biggest problem that humans face. They couldn't deal with our sin. Nothing he could build could contain or restrain God and nothing he could build could contain or restrain the human heart from wandering from God this is the highest point in the old testament you know as good as it gets and yet what we're going to see in the weeks to come is it doesn't last it's all downhill from here and it's going to be all downhill because of Solomon's disobedience And so in the end, with Solomon, all we get, all we get is a taste of where history is heading. We just get a taste of God's goal for history. But a thousand years after Solomon, God raised up a king like him, Jesus, a a king who also loved and obeyed God and believed the promises of God. A king like Solomon, but also Jesus was a king very different to Solomon. When Jesus was despised by the leaders of his, his day, he said to them at one point in Matthew 12, he said to them, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came to the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. 
Notice that. Something. Not someone, although that's also true. What does Jesus draw their attention to? Something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying that he has come. He came to start something greater than what Solomon was doing. He came to begin a building project that's even greater than what Solomon built. Like Solomon, Jesus' project is to build a temple. But unlike Solomon, Jesus' project is not with literal stones. Jesus builds a temple out of people. Paul talks about this in Ephesians um, chapter 2, verse 22. He says, In Jesus, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Jesus does what Solomon could never do. Because in Jesus, we have both the God who promises and the one human who perfectly obeys. God dwelling with us as a human so that all who come to him can be cleansed from sin by his death once and for all and can be built into the greatest building project ever, his kingdom. This is where history is heading. God dwelling with his people in a world of perfect peace, justice, and prosperity. That's God's goal for history. And that's what Jesus is building in the world, even as we speak. Now, I started today by talking about that, that feeling of, of unease that, that we have about where things are going. I think many of us are feeling that. And I reckon it's not just COVID that's made us feel this way. It feels like our world has changed so much so quickly. And I don't know about you, but it makes me feel apathetic. It makes me feel like there's, there's nothing we can actually do. So why bother? It makes me feel like history is out of control. It feels that way. But it's not. History is heading to where God has promised it will go. History is heading towards his goal to dwell with his people. And it's not at risk of human disobedience and stupidity throwing a spinner in the works. Because Jesus at the cross has fully paid the price for human sin already. He's already overcome it. So that what he is building can never be overturned by it. And do you see what this means? It means that like everyone else in the world, we might have a feeling of unease, a feeling of tiredness, and a lack of clarity about what we should do next. But not about the big picture. With the big picture, we can have complete clarity. Right now in history, no matter what life throws at us, we're involved in the greatest building project ever. And I'm not exaggerating at all. The Roman Empire is nothing compared to this. The British Empire is nothing the American dream is insignificant. History is all about the kingdom that Jesus is building. And we are, are blocks being built together in the greatest building project ever. Now, I think it'd just be so easy for us to miss the significance of this. Partly because as we you know, look around 
at who we are individually we just seem like ordinary rough stones and we are and even collectively as we come together things don't look that impressive from a human perspective but look again this is what jesus is building a new humanity where ordinary sinful people like us are brought to complete forgiveness where ordinary sinful people like us are brought together to love god to love other people to be transformed becoming more and more and more like jesus himself we are placed by jesus as citizens of a kingdom that will never end we are placed as members in his family and he will live forever with us you know a, a block lined with cedar gilded with gold if it's sitting in the quarry it's not part of a temple it's not part of god's goal for history we actually need each other to be the temple that jesus is building and whatever we do to help place blocks in what Jesus is building matters whether that's by being here ourselves whether that's by caring for other blocks who are placed alongside us whether that's by helping our kids take their place in Jesus kingdom and what he's doing whether it's by leading others to Jesus all history is about this building project and its goal God dwelling with his people. Now today we we had the enormous privilege of of hearing part of Joseph's story and of hearing of, of of how Jesus is building his kingdom one block at a time that's the way he does it. And I don't know about you but hearing people's story like Joseph's like some of yours it cuts through. Do you find that? It cuts through all the other things in life that that don't really matter as much as this seeing people led to Jesus seeing people go on loving God loving his people seeing people destined to know God's peace justice prosperity for all eternity when Jesus returns and finishes his amazing building project these are the things that really matter and these are the things that we can get on with with clarity no matter what else history throws at us let me pray father your building project astounds us we could so easily dismiss it and yet when we look properly when we see what jesus is doing bringing a united humanity cleansed from sin being transformed into the likeness of your son jesus living together in perfect harmony in a world of every blessing of peace justice and true prosperity lord that is a project that no one on this earth has been able to even come close to when we look at the wars the sickness the selfishness the greed the struggles that we even bring on ourselves 
Lord, our answers are not enough. But we thank you for Jesus, that in his great building project, you have built us into a place where you dwell already and will one day dwell with us eternally. Lord, help us to see with clarity, this is what matters now. This is what matters for all eternity. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.